Grab your Bibles, if you have not already done so, and open them up with me to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 24 this morning. If you were uh, with us last week, uh, if, or if you weren't with us last week, uh, we began this, uh, this journey through uh, chapter 4 of Ephesians where Paul is really shifting gears to become very practical uh, in the outworking of our faith. So he'd spent three whole chapters kind of laying the foundation of the, the doctrine and theology uh, within the Christian faith that defines who we are in Christ. And he, he encouraged us in verse 1 of chapter 4 to walk worthy of the calling that's been placed on our lives. And as we talked through last week's passage, we, we kind of used the illustration of building a house, right? That Paul had laid that foundation and now what he is doing in last week's passage, even a bit today, is building the structure of that home, uh, which we'll later furnish with all the things that you see, right? The, the outward workings of our faith. But uh, what he's doing is he's building that structure of where and how we are to do those things and, and how that works itself out. And so last week, uh, Paul just encouraged us that we don't walk worthy of the calling that's placed in our lives in isolation from one another, but instead, it, it's, it happens within the context and the community of the church and all of its diversity, all of its ups and downs, the, the, the joys, the blessings, the hardships of doing church with one another. He talked about the fact that we are so unified in Christ, yet we are, are diverse in our giftings, that God has gifted each of us according to his grace uh, with a gift to use to minister to one another, to build each other up in maturity into Christ. And so that's this beautiful thing that, that we are rallying together. We are doing this together. And as he continues that, you know, he's going to kind of bring us to a place today, a reason to call us to leave some old things behind because uh, the old is incongruent with this new that he has been talking about. So I don't know how many of you guys uh, really just love throwing stuff away. Like the purge day at your house is something you look forward to when you clean out closets and you clean out the garage and you just start, you're like, haven't touched that in six months, we're chucking it. Maybe, maybe you're more extreme than us and you're like, haven't touched that in two months, it's going, you know? And you like to keep things out some of us like to hold on to things though we're like okay i i just don't understand you people who throw things away it's got value to it it's like i may not need it now but you know maybe in 10 years i'll need it again and you can buy it again if you need it that bad in 10 years uh, but paul is gonna he's gonna just encourage us so no matter if you like getting rid of stuff you like holding on to things he's going to call us today that part of walking worthy of this calling is we got to let stuff go. We got we to gotta throw the old away and live in the new uh, that God has created in us. So let's uh, turn our attention uh, now to uh, verses 17 through 24 together in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes this, says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that's not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former, former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, 
and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a big charge that that Paul brings for us. Some weighty things he's going to call us to examine because the the general encouragement that he's given, the general urging that he's giving us as the church to say, hey, we ought to live uncommon to the world around us, right? As believers, our lives, who we are, should not resemble that of the Gentiles. Now, it's interesting because Paul is speaking in large part in the book of Ephesians to Gentile believers, right? So it's not that uh, he, it's this ethnic Gentile nature of life that he's addressing here. But I think Paul is very concerned with the spiritual Gentiles, right? You guys who, who were not part of the, the family of God, were not part of the people of God, this is how you lived, but you have been called out of that, and now that's the great foundation that he's, he's laid, isn't it? That we now all are, are members of the household of God. We are children of God. We have been brought near to God when we have been far off. And so he says, the rest of the world, who's not a part of God's family, we as those in the household of God ought to live different from them. There ought to be distinguishing features between how we go about living our lives, about who we are, fundamental, behind even just the things that we do, that, that's different from the rest of the world. And that brings to mind, uh, you know, like in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is, is talking about, uh, he, he talks in there about the, the wide gate and the narrow gate. And remember that? Uh, the wide path where many people are on it. But God's people uh, enter through the narrow gate and, and very few will find it. And so this differentiation between that which is common and that which is uncommon. And as God's people, we are called to walk in a manner that is uncommon to the world around us today. And Paul says this with an added sense of authority, right? That's right there in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. It's not to say that everything else Paul has, has outlined or is going to outline isn't written or spoken with authority, it's just, I think the premise that he's saying is this is nothing new. This stuff is straight from the top, if you will. It comes direct from God. That I, This is not some new concept within Christianity that's different from Judaism. He's saying it has always been the design that God's people would be uncommon. Even the Gentiles would have been familiar with that. The Jews would have certainly been familiar with that because under the Old Covenant law, Israel was called to be uncommon in almost every single way from the world around them. It was the Jews and then the rest of the world, all the Gentiles. And the Jews were called to be uncommon in their customs, in the things that they would eat, the, the way that they would go about doing things, what would make them clean, how they did uh, community with one another. Uh, they were called to be uncommon in their ceremonies, they would celebrate things and they would do things that the rest of the world wasn't celebrating and doing. And so God's people, even under the old covenant law, were called to be uncommon. And so when Paul is saying here, like, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we ought to be uncommon with the world. He's not, he's not, this is not a new foundation. This is something that has been established. It has been true for as long as time has existed that those who belong to God ought to walk and live in a manner different than the world around them. So rather than uh, just seeing our uncommonness in terms of our customs and our ceremonies, Paul is saying that now as the church, 
Our uncommonness is rooted in who we are. It's more about our character, our, our Christ-likeness. You see that in verse 24 as he concludes this, that we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, if you remember uh, elsewhere in uh, Galatians chapter 3, Paul talks about the law and that the law was not written to bring righteousness, to bring life, but this true righteousness is found only in Christ. So he's not getting at here like, guys, we're supposed to be truly righteous, truly holy people by just being great obeyers of the law. We're supposed to be new creations in Christ, that, that Christ is the basis for our righteousness. Then that's going to change everything about who we are. And so we now, as people who are in Christ, have been made new. And so this is going to beg some questions that I'm going to uh, outline for us this morning, that as we work through this passage, we should be asking ourselves these very questions. Because Paul, without making them questions, poses them to us. Things for us to consider in a, in a sense of self-evaluation. To examine, okay, am I walking in such a manner? Am I walking in this newness of life that I have been called to? And so the first question, if you will, that we are going to look at is the question of, of what drives me? That's one that all of us need to wrestle with. All of us need to ask of ourselves, what drives me? What is my motivation? What is it that, that gets me up in the morning? What is it that, that spurs me to live and do the things that I do in my life? Paul's concern with our walking worthy of the call on our lives is not so much just concerned with the externals. He's going to deal with those things. Those things are going to come, but he dives much deeper than that. It's, it's more than just the things that you may see on the surface. What drives you is going to become an indicator to, to what you are going to be doing in your life. And so uh, we have to kind of step into the world in which Paul is writing to. Right? Paul writes to believers here living in a culture that was driven by ideals that were very different than what Paul is outlining for that of a believer. Very different than for what life within the church in God's household is supposed to be about. So we see that as he talks about in the first couple verses of our passage. The Gentiles living in the futility of their minds, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. Why have they hardened their heart? Paul says it's because they have given themselves up to sensuality. They have given themselves up as being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so this, this cultural context that Paul is speaking to these believers in is one that was driven by selfishness, one that was driven by sensuality, which I know when we use the term sensuality, we typically think sexual sensuality. But the context that Paul is using is probably a bit broader than just sexuality. That he is dealing with this absolute unchecked license to just pursue your own pleasure. What you want, how you want it, when you want it. That's how the Gentiles lived. That was their context. And Paul's saying, that's not you. Christian, that's not you. 
The world around you may be living for these ideals. And, and if you were to read into the, what that meant for these Christians who were hearing it, Paul's saying you are going to look at people living around you who are going to just indulge themselves in every pleasure and happiness that they may want. Don't do it. That's not worthy of the calling that's been placed on your life. So in essence, you're going to watch people all around you partying it up, seemingly having a great time to what? To their own destruction. So don't be fooled by all the, the laughter and the noise coming from the neighbor's house next door when you're diligently walking faithful to the Lord because it, it's, it's a facade. It's all surface. It's all self-driven. And it leads them to a place where they have become calloused Paul says to these things and he speaks of uh, these impurities and what he's saying in essence is these people have become so desensitized uh, to their sensuality and the way that works itself out the culture they lived in was driven by self and when that's the case people use people to, to an end and that's not how Paul's calling us to live it would not have been uncommon for people in that, in that context in which these believers lived to simply view other individuals as a means to their own sensuality and pleasure in any gross and immoral way that you could imagine. That's not how Christians operate because that's not who we are in Christ. We've been called to something different. And when, this is why we ask that question, what drives you? Because for them, when, when sensuality runs the day, when self becomes the, the central focus, then guess what? It's going to become awfully easy to justify whatever means you're going to need to serve yourself as God. What lines will you be willing to cross when that is your basis? when that is your guideline. And so they've become callous to these things, these impurities that, that literally this, this word impurity carries in itself this concept, especially biblically, of walking in total unworthiness to God. Under the law, the Jewish people would have seen impurities as being completely unclean. You would have been alienated from the society in which you lived until you dealt with your impurities. That's kind of the, the framework biblically, but then even just contextually, this, these impurities conveyed just an, an awful sense of filthiness and uncleanness. Like it, it would have been used at times in a medical sense in reference to wounds that were in, just infested and oozing with pus and all the it, gross. Not to be graphic, but that's, that's the picture that Paul is using. This, it is disgusting, these impurities. And, and we've given ourselves, they've given themselves up to it. To live for these things. And they've become callous to it. They've become desensitized to just how repulsive their sensuality has led them to be. They've lost their conviction. They're willing to do whatever because self is God. Not so for the believer. So we ask ourselves, what is it that drives you? And I would encourage us to honestly and thoughtfully consider that. It's easy on the surface to give a good Sunday school answer. 
But I pose this as a question, not so that we can just write down a note in our piece of paper and take it home with us, but so we might ponder it as you drive home today, when you're laying in bed tonight and you can't fall asleep because of the time change. When you wake up at whatever hour of the night because you got a little baby, what drives you? What is it that, that really gets me going? What motivates my life? What is it that lies there? Because in essence, what Paul is getting at is that as new believers, we put that old self away. We don't tuck it in a drawer or a closet somewhere we can pull it out whenever we want to. You throw it away. It's done. You have no need for it, nor will you ever have need for it again. So this sensuality, these greedy practices, this futility of thinking, all of this stuff may have flown under the old management, but in Christ, there's a new way of doing things. There's a new framework and philosophy about the life that you live. And so you put on the new self, which isn't driven by self, which isn't driven by sensuality, but is driven by love and identity in Christ and who he has called us to be. And so Paul has, if you were to take last week's passage and this week's passage and marry them together as they're meant to be read together, He's contrasting two entirely different ways of life, two cultural ways of life, how we interact in another body of people. Last week, he said, we don't live for self. We don't view one another just as a, a means to trample one another until we get what we want. We are not means to each other's ends in a selfish way. But rather, Paul said, instead, you have been given something rather than to take from other people. You have been given something to give to other people. You have been given a gift by God to take that and to serve your fellow believer. And you serve not with just the intention of your own maturity, but you would serve your fellow believer with the intent for their maturity. Totally flip the societal structure on its head. It's not about taking, it's about giving. It's not about self, it's about society. It's about the church, it's about the other people around you. He, he's, he's reframing the paradigm in which believers go about living out life in Christ. What drives you? And then behind that question is the second question, which is, which is what dictates your life? Who, who gets to determine your life? So when you, when you get down to kind of, when you're, when in your heart of hearts, when you come to a place, you're like, this, this is what drives me. Who gets to determine that? Who has that authority? Is that just yourself? Is your spouse the one telling you that what's supposed to be important for you in your life? Where does that decision come from? Who gets to define who you are? Who gets to define what your values will be? Who gets to define what your worldview is? Yourself? Or somebody beyond you? We can't deny that as, as people, we are created to be those who live within culture. We live within our own culture. They lived within their culture. And Paul spoke to them in their culture. So it's not so much to say, hey, uh, 
as he talks about this, we, we have to wrestle with this concept that we operate within a culture, and it's not that we just rebel against everything that the culture does. It's not that you just say, oh, I see culture doing this, I'm going to do the exact opposite. It's, that's why in chapter 5, Paul's going to say, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, because you've you got to use discernment in these things. There is wisdom that ought to be applied to the Christian life and how we navigate those lines. But we wrestle with who gets to be the ultimate deciding factor, our culture or Christ. Because the reality is, is culture is going to exactly what Paul has outlined here. Take what is true and twist it and manipulate it into something that in the end may be entirely unrecognizable as truth in the first place. Culture may take the good things that God has created and make them altogether impure. Culture may take some truth and twist it into a lie. So where are we going to be at? And after all the, the culture that they're living in, just like uh, Romans chapter 1, Ephesus being a Roman city, we're told that what they did in, in Romans chapter 1 is they exchanged the truth for what? A lie. And what did it result in? They worshiped the creator or the creation rather than the creator. So at the end of the day, this isn't just about slapping on a worldview. This isn't just about slapping on something. This is about this is about our worship. It is about who you worship. Because when we exchange the truth for a lie, that's going to lead us, whether in our own identities, within our own uh, pursuits, our own sensualities, our own whatever it's going to be, culture's going to twist it. So we take those good things and we begin to worship what has been created rather than the one who first created it. So who gets to call the shot? And how do we go about doing it? If Christ calls the shot, then, then what's, the, what's our response to culture? I mean, some people's response to culture may say, I'm, I'm just going to get away from it. We need to step away from culture. We need to step back and separate ourselves from the culture around us. And I would argue, I don't think that's entirely what the New Testament has in mind. I don't think that's the framework in which the church is supposed to engage with the culture around us. We are called to be uncommon, not separated from to live differently within. For example, uh, if you were to go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is speaking to the church uh, about an issue with sexual immorality in their midst. And he, he tells us, listen, we've talked about this. We've talked about this, and I've told you that you shouldn't engage with those who are sexually immoral. But in no way did I mean the sexually immoral of the world. Because then you would have to separate, you'd have to leave the world. And Paul's implication is you can't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, taking the sinner of the world and, and those who live impure in the world and say, we're going to keep them away from us and separate into our own little bubble. We live in the world. We're supposed to live uncommon in the world. And when we do that, you're going to see that the, the emphasis is more on influencing our culture than just stepping away from it. So the question is more about our faithfulness to the call that's been placed in our lives rather than just taking the easy route and saying, hey, you know what, we're going to set up our own little community and you know, we're just going to only talk to people we want to talk to. That's not the idea. Acts 17, verse 6, Paul and Silas 
show up in Thessalonica, another Roman city, and, and people are all up in arms about it, and this guy named Jason uh, houses them, or, and supposedly, and what happens, the, the people from the city go to Jason's house looking for the men, and they drag Jason out because they can't find the guys. They're like, these men that have turned the world upside down have even come here. How do you turn the world upside down when you separate from the world? You don't. You turn the world upside down by being faithful to the call that's been placed on your life in that world. And they did it in the message that they preached. They did it in the way that they practiced what they preached. We talked about that last week. That's why this is so vitally important. If we are to live out these foundational truths, it's you, you're going to rub shoulders with unbelievers. You're going to rub shoulders with the culture around you. But are you willing to rub shoulders? Are you willing to walk just a little bit against the grain? To reframe your, you know, the paradigm of your motivations and, and your worldview that as you engage with people around you, they're like, what, what's with this dude? And they may hate you for it. Are you okay with that? These men that have turned the world upside down I mean, what a statement. And that's what Paul's saying, turn your world upside down. It starts there first. If the church has any desire of turning the culture upside down, turning the world upside down, it ought, it ought to start with us. Get rid of the old and bring on the new. Throw away the old self. Put on the new self. It's, it's a new, you serve a new master. One who has called us to something else. And so it's not just about us going and, and picking fights with the world around us. It's not just saying like, hey, where can we find differences in our, our viewpoints or opinions and let's go debate it. Let's go argue with each other. That's, there may be a place for that. But I don't think that's Paul's idea. But being faithful matters in the little things, in the things that maybe nobody else knows the places that nobody else sees because you are a new creation. You're a new creation. Culture is going to come and go. It'll ebb and flow with time. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if we are in Christ, should there not be a steadiness to who we are in him? doesn't mean we don't get things wrong from time to time, but it means that we are grounded in, in an immovable person. And that is Jesus. Where are you setting your foot? Then the question becomes, how do we go about it? Is it just coming up with different tactics? Different strategies? I think Paul's emphasis is more on transformation. You look at our passage today, it's, it's not just about just do something different, it's, it's about being someone different. Tactics just frankly aren't going to get you very far. Tactics aren't going to get the church very far. There may be some success here and there, maybe for a season, but there's not going to be a whole lot of long-term fruit in that. Paul doesn't waste ink here in Ephesians or in his epistles just merely outlining the latest self-help principles and strategies. It's not his go-to. It's a transformational deal that what he's, he's talking about. And it's more than just changing outfits and hanging up the old outfit in the closet that you'll wear it again tomorrow. 
You got a whole new style. Your wardrobe has completely changed. So you get rid of the old, burn it, throw it away. It's garbage. And you put on the new each and every day because we have been made new in Christ. Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we were buried with Christ so that we might be raised to walk in what? Newness of life. You're still you, but you are different. You you have been changed. You'll notice he uses these words in our passage, uh, that which was according or belonged to your former manner of life, verse 22. He talks about our being renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of our minds, putting on the new self, verse 24. Like This is not just a, hey, here, here's a new uh, life hack. This is a transformation of who we are. That now, in Christ, we have been made in the likeness of God. So we are not uncommon, as Paul is reiterating, just to, for me to say it again, in our customs, it's not just in our ceremonies, but it is in our character. Our character matters. That we are growing up, that our maturity is not just in all the things that we know and have memorized and can articulate. Our maturity is in our reflection of the character of Christ our Christ-likeness. And that's where the body of believers is so important. We are spurring each other up to that. We are ministering to each other to that end. In essence, what Paul is saying is we are renewed image bearers. All men and women, all people are created in the image of God, but in those of us who are in Christ are renewed image bearers, resembling not just the likeness, but, but the character of Christ. that we can look at each other and see Christ in each other. That the world would look at us and see Christ. True righteousness. True holiness. And so these things are, are valid as we wrestle with those, those questions. What drives me? And then who gets to dictate my life? It's going to lead us to a place of asking a, a third question of what decisions do I need to make? And you can't ask the third question without asking the first two. We like to ask the third question and oftentimes the third question only. There are some within the church that, as we talked about in our small groups this week, they, they love to learn. And they'll sign up for every class, every Bible study. They'll read every book and listen to every podcast because information is power. There are some in the church who are on the other side who are like, I don't need to know a whole lot. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Paul marries those two things together. He says it's not just about stuffy head knowledge and it's not just about uh, application without theology. It's about both. You've got to have both. They, they're... they're interconnected with one another. And so when we deal with this last question, what decisions do I make? We have to start with those first two or we're going to come to the wrong conclusions in the third one. But as Paul's outlining this uh, walking worthy of, of the call that's been placed on us, he, he outlines three different things for us. The first that we might say even, even probably more in today's passage than even what we'll see some of in the, in the weeks to come is our philosophy. Right? Paul speaks of the renewing of our mind. 
And this isn't the only place he talks about it. He talks about it in Romans, he talk, uh, the Colossians he talks about it. He talks about all over the place in his epistles. There is a renewal of the mind that happens uh, for the believer. And so when I use the term philosophy, I'm not just meaning like sign up for your philosophy 101 at the local community college and deal with that. What I mean is what is your worldview? Paul is going to hit to that, and he continues to to that that you have a new perspective. You, as a believer, have been revealed and made known to things that, that other people are darkened to in their understanding because they've rejected it. Not because the, the call hasn't been there, not because the truth hasn't been preached, but they've hardened their hearts to it. But God has softened our hearts. God has opened our hearts and revealed to us in a way that that should change everything else that goes about us. So we talk Christian biblical worldview being that which, uh, by which you interpret and interact with the world around you. It's different than that of the Gentiles, as Paul uses it. It's a different paradigm. It is a different framework for understanding the world. So if if you're in a place where your worldview tends to be consistent with the way the rest of the world is viewing it, maybe there needs to be an adjustment. Maybe there needs to be an examination and time before the Lord to say, perhaps there's, there's something that needs to change in my worldview. That, I, that I've held on to a bit of how I used to think or, or interact with the world around me where God's calling, it to, calling me to a place of newness. We're called to be uncommon in that way. Secondly, coming out of that, you'll see these, these build upon each other, uh, our, our priorities. The things that are important for us in our life. The priority for the world, as we see, at least in the, in, in the context of Ephesians, where Paul is writing, lied primarily with self. So whatever happened in life was oriented around this concept of self. That's what was important. So pleasure, happiness, indulgence, that drove the day. That was important and life was structured. Society was structured around that. But as Christians... God has reoriented the priorities in our life. We are not called to value the same things the world values. We are called to value those things which are valuable to God's heart. We may have certain areas of focus. We have different giftings. But our priorities in life ought to reflect the newness of who we are in Christ. And finally... It gets down to our practices. And again, that's where you go back to what, what did it lead them to? What were the outworkings of uh, the, the Gentile worldview and the Gentile priorities? It was the practice of every kind of impurity. But in the church, and, and Paul is going to deal with this in the weeks moving ahead, next week, uh, chapter 5, chapter 6, all, he gets very, very down to earth. Those conversations will be useless if we don't deal with the newness that we have now. We oftentimes, even in the church, are more focused on the practices than we are on the priorities, 
the philosophy of the being made new in Christ. And as such, we spend a whole lot of time treating symptoms. We cut the leaves off the dandelion and it grows back a week later. And then we get frustrated. We get irritated. We get disappointed. We're discouraged, even in ourselves and maybe even with those around us, that when we see the dandelion grow back. Because we never dealt with the core. We never dealt with the root. Paul deals with the root. He calls us to deal with the root. Then you deal with the, the, the symptoms. And we need to fight the urge to do that backwards. And if you think that's alien to the church, go to your local Christian bookstore and see all the books that are five steps to your best life, your best marriage right around the corner, whatever they may be. We're very symptom-oriented. We need to restructure our approach to these things. That's why Paul roots all of this in the newness of who we are in Christ. So if you were to ask yourself and ponder one final thing, it would be, where are you at? And be honest. If you are in Christ then your attention ought to be peaked for all the things that we're going to talk about moving forward. If you are not in Christ, it's going to be a lot of hard work that's going to get you a lot of nowhere. If you are a new creation, then how are we seeing God make us new? How is that being lived out? But if you're not new, it's going to be the same old under a different, different cloak. So Paul's inviting us to a place of some self-evaluation here. To really ask the heart questions that are going to be at play underneath everything that we're going to deal with moving forward. So I encourage you, I implore you uh, this week to spend some time wrestling with the heart questions ponder those things, pray about them, because we'll talk about, we'll talk about this stuff. We'll talk about the priorities, we'll talk about the practices, but now's the time to start saying, Lord, show me my heart. If there's any impure way within me, reveal it to me, that I might walk holy and upright before you.